So good to share God's word with you this morning. One of the great blessings of joining together to worship the Lord is just being overwhelmed with tremendous gratitude for all that Christ has done for us, in us, through us, and all that he will accomplish in our future. If you would open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 will be in verses 15 through 21. Uh, this morning, if you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. Uh, there should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 1075, 1075. As other uh, individuals have already said, I do want to uh, also say Happy Father's Day to all the fathers on campus and those joining with us online. I am very blessed uh, to have a father that loved and loves my brother and I, and I am blessed uh, to be uh, a father of five amazing children. And I'm blessed to have a wife that encourages me and challenges me uh, to be the dad that God has designed, uh, God has declared over me and given me power to do. And I am more than, more than blessed uh, to know uh, my Heavenly Father. I am so thankful that the Lord has pursued me and has uh, given me everything that I need in Christ. And I'm thankful that I am adopted in His family. And I pray the same is true for you. As we enter our time of studying God's word and responding to God's word, I pray that as uh, God speaks uh, to us through his spirit and through his word, uh, that we will respond in faith. The importance of God's word isn't just to have truth in our minds, but truth that captivates our hearts and transforms our life. To set the stage of where we are this morning, uh, I want to piggyback on where we've been the past two weeks in Galatians chapter 2 and Galatians 2, uh, beginning in verses 1 through 10. Uh, we see that uh, as Paul and Barnabas uh, brought Titus, uh, Paul and Barnabas being uh, of Jewish background and Titus being that of Gentile background, as they go to Jerusalem, uh, they meet with the elders there or the leaders there in the Jerusalem church. You have, uh, you have Peter, James, and John. And really at that point, they, they want to make sure that they are unified under the message of gospel grace, right? Let's make sure we're on the same page with this because we both have heard, all of us have heard from Jesus himself, uh, the amazing gospel of grace uh, but there are people that are coming into the church and they're beginning to uh, tempt us to distort that or tempt us to turn away from that. And so we need to make sure that we are united on this amazing message of God's grace. And, and it's in that message of God's grace that we are uh, partners in this mission and this ministry that God has called us to. And so verses 1 through 10 are so, so important. And they leave that moment in Jerusalem unified under all aspects of the gospel. But then when we get to verses 11 through 14, there's an issue that happens. But it doesn't happen in Jerusalem. It happens in Antioch. Remember, Antioch was really uh, the hub of the mission field, if you will. Uh, the church was born there in Jerusalem. And because the spreading of the gospel to the Gentile nations, those are non-Jews. So you and I, uh, unless you have a Jewish descent, you and I will be part of that Gentile background. Uh, Antioch became like that second hub, really, of just sending the gospel out from uh, Jerusalem. And so Antioch would be uh, in Syria, the capital of Syria. And so Peter goes to Antioch, and he wants to, he wants to continue fellowship with the Gentiles. Remember, they were unified under the message of the gospel. So Jew and Gentile are one in Christ, right? And everything sounds good, and everything looks good, until a certain group of people come from Jerusalem to Antioch, and they begin to stir up trouble. In fact, it was so much uh, pressure, if you will, on Peter that Peter pulls away from table fellowship from those of the Gentile background. Again, we're talking about Christians. We're talking about born-again believers, right? Saved by faith through by the grace of God, right? By grace through faith. And the issue was, is Peter was afraid. Now, we don't know exactly why Peter was afraid, but we do know that he removes himself from table fellowship, uh, and, and it causes uh, disunity in the church, 
And so much so that even Barnabas, Barnabas who was there uh, when uh, Paul was introduced to the church after his salvation, uh, Barnabas the one who's the great encourager, even it says that Barnabas was led astray. And so there's an issue that begins to happen. And, And here's the point that I think is important for us to realize. As conflict arises within the body of Christ, if it be the, the, the larger body of Christ or just individual Christ followers, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to determine how we're going to address that conflict, right? Now, oftentimes, we address conflict within the body of Christ based on emotion, right? Based on emotion or based on past experience, uh, based on our agenda, what we want to be said, the way that we want things to go. But it's important that all conflict is addressed how? Through the lens of the gospel. And that's what we see in verses 15 through 21. So as you enter into our time of worship, as we study God's word, conflict is a reality in life, right? We're dealing with relationships. And the the primary relationship that we have is with the Lord. Secondary, it's with our church family. And third, it's with uh, people outside of the, the faith. And so conflict is going to happen. And so the key is how do we address conflict appropriately within the body of Christ? And it's always the gospel. And that's why I love what Paul does in verses 15 through 21. Listen to how he addresses the conflict that was arising. Remember, the sin of hypocrisy, that it's not just enough to be saved by the grace of the gospel. It's Jesus plus works. There's something else that you have to do to earn or secure that salvation. In order to grow in your relationship with the Lord or your fellowship with the Lord, there is a list of things that you have to do. And that was the great weight that was happening in the early church. And guess what? That is the very weight that many of us carry today. So how do we address that? We address that with the gospel. And listen to the gospel in verses 15 through 21. The scripture says, we ourselves, so remember this is uh, Paul and Peter. So he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What amazing verses. And so as we unpack this, I want to encourage you. There are going to be two important truths that we're going to unpack this morning. And then we're going to have a series of application. I believe this is one of the the greatest moments in your life today. That when you leave here today, that you will know with 100% assurity that you are saved by the grace of the gospel, not by the weight that you carry, not by the weight that other people put on your your shoulders. But today you will live, live and leave liberated by the gospel of grace Why? Because of the first truth that we see here. What is that truth? We are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, that's a massive statement. So for you note takers, we're going to pause for just a moment. And here's what you're going to do. You're just going to write down these key words, justified, grace, faith, Christ alone. Because that's where we're going to unpack this first truth. Absorb that truth for just a moment. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's a very concrete statement. It's a very truth statement. It's a statement that will change your life. This statement is so important to the Apostle Paul that he really 
illustrates this or communicates this truth three different times in those two verses in verses 15 and 16. Listen to what he says again. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, it's important for us to understand that when Paul says this language of that, that we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Paul is not saying that we're, we're unlike the Gentiles and that we aren't sinners. Paul was fully aware of the fact that he was what? That he was a sinner. Now, what is he communicating in that first verse, in verse 15? Well, basically, he's saying that unlike the Gentiles, in the Old Testament, the Jews had the advantage. The Jews, in many ways, had the inside track. Now, think about it. They had the law of God. God gave the law to them. They had priests. They had prophets, right? They saw God's amazing work before their eyes, the parting of the Red Sea, the delivery from slavery, God's faithfulness in the midst of unfaithful generation after generation after generation. They had the spiritual heritage. They had all the background. They had absolutely everything. They were God's chosen people. And yet Paul says even that wasn't enough. Even that wasn't enough. Paul is using all of this to set up an important argument. And that important argument is addressed by one important question. How is a sinner right with God? That is, the, that is the question. Even if we don't acknowledge that, the way God created us, there is, a, there is a, a certain weight that drives at our heart of what does it take to be right? What does it take to be approved and accepted? Now, we go about that in many different forms, but at the, the end of the day, that is the, the question of the day. That is the question that you and I face every single day that we wake up. In fact, if you go back to the book of Job, Job, which is more than likely the first uh, written uh, word in Scripture, right? Way before Genesis 1, right? So you have Job, and it's important because there's a suffering here. And there's a challenge between the sovereignty of God and the evilness of Satan, and guess who wins every single time? God does, right? And it's in the midst of that that Job says something very important in Job 25, verse 4. He says, how then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? In other words, the greatest issue that you face today isn't the family that you were brought into. It's not the neighborhood that you live in. It's not the degree that you have or don't have. It's not the amount of money that you have in the bank account. It's not even your physical health. That is not your greatest issue. The greatest issue that all of us are plagued with is the very fact that when we enter into this world, we enter into this world with a sin nature. And because we have a sin nature, we sin. And because we have a sin nature and sin, we are what? We are separated from God. God's standard is the holiness, perfection. Now, you may be sitting here today and say, well, you know, I'm really not that bad. I'm, I mean, we're going to be honest here. I'm, I'm quite good, you know. I don't do all, I mean, we, we have a bent towards self-righteousness, don't we? The way we dress, the way we talk, the way we look at other people, everything breeds that I'm better than the people around me. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. Now, there's a, there's a great flaw in that mindset. What is the flaw? Well, the half-brother of Jesus, James, says this in James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. One slip-up in action, in word, in thought. I mean, think about the gamut of where sin runs rapid in our life. It's not just the behavior that we're due, but, it, but it's the motivation behind that behavior, right? So this is a big deal. In other words, the margin for error and measuring up to God's standard is what? It is zero, Right? There is no deviation here. There is no uh, 
okay, a couple times is okay. No, it's you sin one time. You deviate from the law, God's standard. One time, you're guilty of all of it. This is why Paul makes it perfectly clear. Understand the language that he said in Galatians 2, 15 and 16. He says, we are not justified by works. He makes it personal. I am not justified by works. And then he says, no one is justified by works. There are no exceptions. That's why justification is so, so important. The word justification is a legal term, and it means to be declared not guilty. And it's a one-time past event that is permanent. That's important. We're not in the process of justification. We're not in the process of being right with God. If you've been saved by the grace of the gospel and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you stand today and forever justified. Praise God for that. I'm not trying to earn it. I'm not trying to secure it. It is a done deal in Christ. This means that in Christ and only in Christ can you stand right now and forever not guilty, innocent before God. That means your case, your case of sin against you will never be brought up again. But it gets better. The judge's one and only son takes the payment for your sin and exchanges your sin for his holiness. Romans 3, 22 through 25 says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is what? There is no distinction. Doesn't matter if you come from the Jewish background, a Gentile background. Doesn't matter what house you grew up in. It doesn't matter how many things were against you in this world. There is no distinction. Why? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as what? As a gift. That is by his grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, meaning Jesus was our substitute by his blood to be received by faith. What amazing grace in these verses. God initiates something that we cannot do on our own, right? The gift of Jesus Christ into this world. And not only does he initiate something, he, com- he completes something. He completes something on your behalf and my behalf, something that we could not do on our own. Again, we're not growing in justification. It's a one-time event in your past. If you've placed your faith in Christ, it's permanent, can never be changed, can never be taken away. There's no second trial. It's done. You are innocent. You are guiltless before the Lord. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. It's a divine act of his amazing grace, not based on your performance or my performance, but based on his perfection, where Jesus was innocent And it was gifted death. You and I are guilty, and we have been gifted what? We have been gifted life. Not guilty, innocent, holy. How? Through faith. That's the other word, faith. But not just faith in faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's the key. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith. The beauty of faith is this. We are renouncing any confidence in ourselves, and fully trusting in the finished work of Christ. If you want a good definition of faith, that's it. I'm renouncing any confidence in myself and fully trusting on what? The completed work of Jesus Christ. Listen, child of God, do you know how blessed you are today? Do you sit here today? Do you sing the songs that we just sung? Do you absorb the scripture in such a way that you know That you are blessed today. You have divine acquittal of all charges, past, present, and future. Not guilty, right? Innocent before the Lord. David, speaking of this blessing, says in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. In other words, our guilt has been removed. Whose sin is covered. Our shame has been covered over by the blood of Jesus. Verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. In other words, The entire record of your wrongs has been wiped clean. Man, that's beautiful. 
That means I don't, I don't walk this earth with, a, with the weight of the transcript of my sin on my shoulders. Why? Because I've been justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. My sheet is clean. Your sheet in Christ is clean. So do you know how blessed you are today? The question for you today is, have you been justified? Have you truly received Christ as your Savior? Not, not just some emotional experience. Listen, for those who think emotions are not a part of salvation, you've, you've forgotten how God created us, right? Emotion is a part of it, but it's not led by emotion. Listen, it's okay to well up with tears. It's okay to well up with excitement. It's okay to, to show and celebrate what God is doing in your life. But your salvation is not based on an emotional experience. Your salvation is based on the fact that you have put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, even when things are really rotten. Your emotions don't destroy that, right? Have you been justified by the grace of God? The second truth, justified people are transformed people. Justified people are transformed people. What does justification for me, what does it mean for me today? That's basically the question that's being asked. And and Paul anticipates this question. Again, understand verses 1 through 10, Galatians 2, there's unity. Galatians 11 through 14, there's hypocrisy. There's got to be something more than just Jesus plus nothing else. There's got to be some works that are there. Now, if we're honest, it's that side of grace that scares us, right? You mean it's Jesus plus nothing forever? Yeah, that's what the scripture says. I mean, this totally goes against our, our human nature, right? Of, there's got to be something I have to do, right? There's something outside of faith in Christ that, that I, I, I need to do, and not just do, but on a daily basis. So we have this checklist of life, right? And I'm not saying checklists are bad, but what's the point of the checklist, right? And so Paul is addressing two great errors in the next set of verses here. And the first error, and, and what's interesting about these two errors when it comes to uh, that first truth, we are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. There, there are two great errors that Paul wants to address, and, and they sound different on the surface, and in many ways they are, but at, at the core, they all get us to the same place. And so understand what Paul is saying here. So what's the first error that Paul is going to address? In other words, if I'm, if I'm justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, and, and that's permanent, like there's nothing that's ever going to change that, then can't I just go and live however I want? Do I have a license to sin to know that grace covers it all? Can I just live in rebellion? Can I do me, right? That's the theology of the day. Do me. And Paul, Paul addresses that with great anticipation. No, that is an error when you think about being justified in Christ. He says in verse 17, listen to how he addresses it. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? That's an important phrase. Is Christ then a servant of sin? And what is his response to that? Certainly not. There is absolutely no way that Christ is a servant to sin. And that was the issue that the religious group had. If it's not Jesus plus works, then is that going to breed into the church just a, a license to do whatever you want? That sin will continue to increase, right? I mean, that's how we function. The more rules, the better outcome, right? I mean, think about that as a parent. We don't see behavioral change the way that we want. Oftentimes, we bypass the heart of the child, and we go to what? we got to have more rules, right? So everywhere you go, there's rules and rules and rules and rules. 
listen, the grace of God didn't abolish the law, right? Jesus came to fulfill the law. That's important. So the law is not bad. In fact, we find all throughout Scripture that Jesus, uh, even Jesus and Paul and David, they delighted in what? The law of the Lord. And so for you and I, we don't see the law as bad. We see the law as giving a standard that we cannot reach on our own, right? That's important. And so for the religious group, their concern was if you don't put up a bunch of things, right? Not just the law of God, but all the law of man, the tradition of man and everything that we expect. If you don't keep that heavy-weighted in people's lives, they're, gonna, they're just going to run havoc all over the place, right? Well, Peter, or Paul says, no, the reason why that's not true, the reason why grace doesn't promote sin is because that goes against the very character of God, right? God, in his character, never promotes sin. So if he brings grace into this world, how is it that grace is going to promote sin in someone's life? Paul addresses this same idea in Romans 6 when he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Why is that important? Because we're transformed, right? Because we've been justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, we have been transformed. And that exposes an error for us. In other words, have you ever had a thought or heard somebody say, well, it's okay if I sin because God's grace covers it? In other words, are we using our justification to excuse the sin that we're in or to justify the sin that we're in? It comes in subtly, but the danger is we have lost sight of the beauty and power of God's grace. The second error is this. If I've been justified by grace through faith in Christ alone then there's something I need to do to secure it, or the greater weight that most often we face is every single day I have to live in such a way to earn the approval of God, right? Anybody ex experience that struggle? That every day that you live, every decision that you make, every thought that you have, that, that, that you're doing that somehow to earn or secure the approval and acceptance of God. And that's the other thing that Paul is gonna address here. He says in verses 18 and 19, he says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. So first we see the sin of license, do whatever you want. The second sin that Paul addresses is the sin of legalism. Now think about legalism for just a moment. Legalism communicates the idea that in order to be approved by God, accepted by God, there's something that I have to do, right? And so you, you live every day in your own strength. You live every day with a list of rules and uh, you try to make them achievable rules because if you don't achieve them, then you live defeated every time, right? But then you get that list pretty good, and all of a sudden, somebody else throws something else in, or you see somebody else doing something really good, and so now you're going to add that. Well, it's not going to spend 15 minutes a day with the Lord. I'm going to do an hour, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. And so this idea of legalism is there's, that you are doing things in your own strength, your own power, in order to earn or secure the approval of God. Every single one of us, at some degree, have a bit of a legalism in us, right? That's why we make life hard on ourselves, and we make life on, hard on other people around us. Because, because inside of us, to a degree, there's this, this, this side of us that says, I've I, got to prove myself to God. I've got to somehow pay God back for what he has done. And, and the damage that it happens in your life, in our life, as Christ followers. Paul says, why, why would I want to go back to that? 
Now think about Paul for just a moment. Paul understood the weight of trying to earn God's favor. He felt the weight to the point where it almost crushed him. But by the grace of God, that weight drove him to his need for Christ. So we praise God for that. Listen to the struggle that Paul has in Romans 7. He says, so I find it to be a law that when, to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He says, for I delight in the law of God. Again, the law of God is not bad. That's important for us to realize. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So think about what Paul is saying here for just a moment. He delights in the law of God. He's trying to fulfill the law of God in his life, works, right? The idea is the more I work towards law, the greater freedom I will have, right? That's the false idea. But what does he say? He says, the more that I strive to fulfill the law in my own life and my own strength, I don't feel any freer. In fact, I feel more captive to it. So Paul has this great struggle. How does he address the struggle? Verse 24, he said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see the beauty in that. When you finally get to a point where you recognize that you have zero strength in yourself to fulfill the standard of God in your life, and, and for you, trying to live every day as a Christ follower, to earn or secure approval and acceptance by God for what you do, Paul, Paul says, listen to my testimony. Don't, don't live in that weight. Christ has freed us from that. So we trust in the finished work of Christ. So there's the sin of license, the sin of legalism. They look differently on, us, on the surface, but at the end of the day, they're, they're moving us away from the gospel of grace and so the question for us this morning is, where do you find yourself enslaved to license or enslaved to legalism in your life? Do you feel a weight of that? And Christ has freed us from that. So what does that mean for us? How do we live transformed? And that is the application for this morning. Galatians 2.20, a very familiar verse, but listen to what he says. As I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 20 is amazing because Paul makes it extremely personal. Seven personal pronouns in this particular verse. I'm going to challenge you to do something real quick. Shout out your first name. Just shout it out. Everybody. I heard Delmer. Make it personal, Delmer. Delmer has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer Delmer who lives, but Christ who lives in Delmer. And the life Delmer now lives in the flesh. Delmer lives by faith in the Son of God who loved Delmer and gave himself for Delmer. Do that every day. If you do nothing else, make it personal. Put your name in that place if you are a child of God. That promise is for you. That life is for you. So based on this verse, how do we live a transformed life today? How do we live in a world that is against everything that's gospel saturated, right? How do we go to school? How do we go to work? How do we conduct relationship within family members who are not like-minded in faith? How do we deal with conflict in the church? How do we live a transformed life? First thing, live in the promises of God. Live in the promises of God. You know, we've been given amazing promises in Christ. And Paul addresses one of those. He says in verse 20 in the first part, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
Again, this is a past event with ongoing implications. This means that I have been set free from the penalty and power of my sin. In other words, I have a new identity in Christ. I'm not the same person I used to be. Paul says in Romans 6, verses 6 through 7, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him, past tense, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one has died, has been set free from sin. Now think about it like this. I'm going to challenge you for just a moment. Go back 2,000 years ago. Go back to the cross for just a moment. What was on the cross that day? Four things. Jesus. There was a sign. Remember his charge, king of the Jews? The debt and weight of your sin, my sin, the sin of the whole world. And there's a fourth thing that was there. You know who it was? You and I. You and I were on that cross with Jesus. Think about it. We are united in his death. When Christ died 2,000 years ago, my old life died with him. I have a new identity in Christ. And when Christ rose from the grave three days later, I too rose from the grave. So not only are we united in his death, we are united in his resurrection I have new life in him. Paul explains it like this, a beautiful language, Romans 6, 3 and 4. He says, do, not, do you not know that all, in all of us, that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, baptism here isn't talking about water baptism. The word baptism talks about immersion, right? My, my life is immersed in Jesus' death, and my life is... Immersed in Jesus' resurrection. That's why we do baptize by immersion, because it's a beautiful picture of the fact that my old life is buried in his death and my new life is raised in his glorious resurrection. When Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, he's literally saying it's not the same me anymore. Before Christ, I was enslaved to sin. I was enslaved to my own agenda. I was enslaved to doing things in my own strength, but not anymore. I'm new in Christ. I'm no longer under the dominion of my own sin I've been set free. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under what? You are under grace. Where do you struggle living in the promises of God? Where do you struggle in the promises of God? We only hit one, but that's enough to hopefully to get us moving here. Second thing, how is it that we are to live the transformed life today? Uh, we are not only to live in the promises of God, but we are to live in the provisions of God, provisions. So not only do we have new identity, but man, we have new power. We have gospel power. Galatians 2.20, second part there says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That verse has two amazing truths that I want to unpack real quick. First, the life of Christ now lives in me. That's a beautiful phrase. What does he say? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul communicates this a little differently in Colossians 3, verse 3. He says, For you have died, and your life is what? Is hidden in Christ, in God. In other words, Every day I walk in this life, I am wrapped with whose arms? Christ's arms. And who's wrapping Christ with his arms? The Father. So we are incredibly provided for, right? So every day that I live this life, I have the arms of Jesus wrapped around me, and Jesus has the arms of the Father wrapped around him. Can you imagine the provision that we have if we understood what it meant to be hidden in Christ? That means everything that we needed today to live today and hope for tomorrow has already been given to us in Christ. The scripture reminds us that it's the power of the Holy Spirit that brings this to our mind and brings it into our desires and to our actions. Romans 8, 10, 11 says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
Do you live today knowing that Christ lives in you? You see, the Christian life isn't so much about what you do for God. The Christian life is being reminded every single day of trusting in the one who lives in you. Let that help you. And it's done by faith. That's the second thing that we see here. Not only is uh, the life of Christ now living in me, but every day I live dependent on him. Every day I live dependent on him. That's the second part of the phrase. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's the key to Christian life, dependency on him. Every single day I walk in dependency in him. Not, not just that Christ died for me in the past and now I'm justified in Christ, but Christ died for me in the past and that has amazing ramifications in my life today. I live by faith today. Speaking of dependency on Christ and living a life that reflects Christ, Peter says it like this in 2 Peter verse 1. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has what? He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become what? Partakers of the divine nature, meaning that we reflect Christ having accepted, uh, escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desires. You see, faith in Christ is not just a one-time deal. It's every single day. That's why Paul says in Colossians 2, Therefore, as you receive Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Live every day in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Faith in Christ is the new lifestyle for you and I today. Every day we live with our faith in Christ. Christ-centered living comes by faith. Not perfect faith, but faith in the perfect one, right? How do we stay rooted in Christ? Jesus says, abide in him. Fellowship with him. John 15, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, I in him, it is him that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Do you see the reminder that the Christian life isn't about a bunch of rules? The Christian life is about enjoying a relationship. That we have fellowship with the Lord. Every day we are to live in fellowship with the Lord. And the beauty is God wants to live in fellowship with you. He wants to live in fellowship with you. This means that we are to bring everything to Jesus, everything. There's nothing that interrupts him, right? He desires to have fellowship with us. So the question is, where do you struggle living in the provision that God has for you? Where do you struggle with that provision? He's given us everything we need. Lastly, we are to live in the protection of God. We are to live in the protection of God. Anybody here struggle with living the transformed life? Anybody? Do you know you're protected today? How do we know where is it rooted? Last part of verse 20 says, who loved me and gave himself for me. Think about it like this. At the cross and at my worst, he loved me and he died for me. He loved Delmar and died for Delmar. The word for in that passage talks about in our place, Jesus substituted himself for me. He took my hell that I might have his heaven. He died in my place instead of me. Notice the double me there. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Again, very personable. There's protection here. How is there protection? Think about the love of Christ. Think about the, the extent of that assurance that we have in him. Paul says in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate, me, separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you have assurance today in your salvation? Oftentimes our lack of assurance is because our performance, right? But aren't you glad that your assurance isn't based on your performance? It's based on the finished work of Christ and the love that he showed us on the cross. What does that mean for you and I today? Hear the promise of protection from Paul in Romans 8.1. There is therefore what? Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Live every day knowing that Jesus stood in your place condemned so that you would not. There's protection in Christ. So what happens when we sin? I love what John says in 1 John 2, 1. Listen to these beautiful truths. He says, my little children, so he's talking to the church. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, right? In other words, we have a choice now. We don't have to sin, right? We have provision in Christ not to sin. We have power through his Holy Spirit. Then he says this, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So not only do we have provision not to sin, but when we do sin, we have protection when we do sin. Why? Because John knows what you and I know. We're not perfect. There's only one perfect, Jesus Christ. So what happens when we do sin? We have an advocate in Christ Jesus who's pleading our case every single day. Are we guilty on that piece of paper? Yeah. But when Christ gets involved, guess what? We're innocent every single time. The flesh is more vulnerable than you think. That's why it's important every single day to live in the very protection that we have in Christ, knowing that he is our advocate. Jesus stands in our place every day. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, and justified people live transformed lives. How? Through relying on the promises, the provisions, and the protection that God gives us. And Paul closes with this verse, and this is where I'll close this morning. Verse 21, he says, so all of that, right, all of that, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Where do you find yourself rejecting the gospel? Again, Christ followers. Where is it in your life where you are being tempted to twist or turn away from the gospel of grace? Where do you see yourself being engaged in license or legalism? Paul says, don't, don't nullify the power of the gospel. Don't nullify the power of the gospel. Jesus himself said, don't nullify the power of the gospel for the sake of tradition, for the sake of what you do. Experience the freedom that we have in Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. I pray that this morning that you realize that the greatest truth you could ever receive and live in is the very fact that you are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone.